So to me, if you want to build toughness, understand your operational environment. And then you have to build the skill so that you're better than the problem you're up against. And, and if you're going to build your skill to be better than the problem you're in, you're going to have to get comfortable doing really difficult things. Because it's only when you do something difficult and you force your body to adapt to that, that you make gains in said domain. Hello and welcome. I'm Eric Corum, and you're listening to the Blueprint Podcast, where we explore the journey of high performance by learning from the struggles and triumphs of some of the most interesting people in the world. Today, I'm talking with Brian Decker. Brian is currently the Director of Player Development for the Indianapolis Colts, and he previously served as the Commander of Special Forces Assessment and Selection. Brian's work has been highlighted in multiple media outlets, including The Athletic and ESPN. Today, we talk about identifying talent, the cost of leadership, and the truth about developing mental toughness, and so much more. Brian's take on developing teams and how leaders gain their legitimacy within a team will leave you evaluating your work environment differently. And now it's time to lean in and learn from the best. Well, good morning, Brian. How are you doing? Doing great. How are you doing, Eric? Awesome. Thanks for coming on and being our first guest on the Blueprint Podcast. This is super exciting. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So let's just get started. Let's let's talk about like introduce yourself to our followers and our listeners. I want you to talk a little bit about your background and your journey from childhood to how you ended up serving in the military. Well, I'm going to start with where I'm at. First of all, um, I'm a husband. You know, I have a wife, Karen, of 20 years, and I have three uh, beautiful young daughters. Mm. And I currently work as the director of team development for the Colts. And I also have a career in the military and special forces. But I, I'd like to go back to the beginning. Um, I grew up in rural south, southeastern Kentucky, uh, an area that's not, I don't think, different than a lot of rural areas in the, in the south, uh, economically deprived, tougher areas. Uh, we, it was very humble beginnings. We didn't have a lot growing up and, uh, you know, not a lot of people in those areas were able to break that cycle and go on to do, th- you know, great things in life. I remember, I think I was probably, you know, eight or 10 years old in that range. You know, there's an age in which you realize that you don't have, or you don't have the same beginning that others have. Other people have things that you don't. And, uh, I remembered being different or feeling different. And when I say feeling different, the only way I can describe it is, is I had this energy and I just didn't have any place to focus it. So I, I, I grew up really the only thing I did growing up was, was hunting and fishing. And I didn't care much for school. Uh, I played football and if I said I was terrible, uh, it would be a compliment. I didn't break a hundred pounds until I think halfway through my sophomore year. Wow. I was, I was tiny. And, uh, so I I wasn't very good and I really didn't enjoy any success growing up. I really didn't have any place to put that energy. I'd never really found a purpose or why a passion. And, um, after high school, a struggle, I struggled through high school. I didn't do very well in school. I didn't enjoy learning. I, I, you know, I struggled with reading. I struggled with math. I, I struggled with all of the, all the topics. And, and I just didn't enjoy school. And then after after high school, I wanted to go to the University of Kentucky, but you know I couldn't. I didn't qualify. I didn't have the grades or the scores. 
And so I ended up going to one of the satellite community colleges. And after a year and a half uh, of what my mother would call a failed experiment, I ended up, she's like, you know, you got to do something else. You just, the school thing's not for you. Because I, I essentially had a 2.0 GPA. I, I had taken English 101 all three semesters and hadn't got through it. I'd taken college algebra twice and hadn't gotten through it. And just everything was kind of a struggle. So For those of you who can't see my face right now, my eyebrows are through the roof because <laughs> the story you're about to hear is pretty amazing. Continue. I'm sorry. This is fascinating. Yeah. So for me, I, uh, you know, I was looking for a fresh start. And, you know, a lot of this is, you know, you need sometimes you just need a shock the system. You need a change. You know, I think everyone believes that since we have television and we have social media and we have all these things that life's really about the choices. But you are largely a product of your environment. And, and it's difficult to overcome that because you don't you don't see the same opportunities that people who come from other areas might see. So for me, when I joined the military, it was the first thing that I had truly done well. And when I say by doing well, I received that external validation. Somebody else told me I was good. You know, that became part of my self-worth. That became part of my identity. And um, a year or so in, uh, an older gentleman, a a senior officer asked me, he says, what are you going to do with your life? And I was I was thinking Friday, Saturday. What are you talking about? Sunday? You know, that's that's the time horizon you are. You're very into that immediate gratification. I really didn't have a plan. And he said, no, what are you going to do with your life? And I said, I'm not really sure at this point. I really enjoy the military, but I, I don't know what the options are. And he asked me, he said, do you would you consider going back to school and becoming an officer? And I said, yeah, that, that school thing, uh, tried it, didn't work out real well for me. And where it was different this time was that he believed in me. He believed in me before I believed in me. And he created a path. He told me, he, he said, this is what I think you should do. And here's the way you go about doing it. Can you unpack that for a second? The idea that sometimes we need somebody to believe in us. Because people are like, you need to get self-motivated. You need. Do you believe that sometimes you need somebody in your life to say, you know what, you can actually do this? Yes, I do. You know, one of the things having, you know, gone through the background of multiple players and a a lot of people that I served alongside of in the military is there's tends to be somewhere in their life. There seems to be a a period of adversity. It could be an event or a period of time. And during that period of time, they learn the value of effort and persistence But that typically is not enough. You know what? Typically somewhere along that line, someone comes along and and pairs up with that person at just the right time. And they become that mentor. They become that coach. They help people see things that they couldn't see. And and really, they kind of lift the fog and provide clarity. Mm. And then if you've developed enough drive throughout that process, once you see your destination, and you see the path to it, it's it's really just about working your tail off. Hmm. And that's what it, I did. That's what I did. So I went back. I left my service after three years, and I went back to Eastern Kentucky University, which was close to home. And I graduated in two and a half years. And it was all A's and B's. It was mostly A's. 
I, I fell in love with learning. And the reason, and I don't know that I fell in love, I would have done it any other way, but learning got between me and my goal. You know, I wanted to be an officer in the military and a college degree got between me and that goal. But as soon as I got there with this discipline, with the work habits that I cultivated in the military, with this mindset, with this renewed vigor on my goal, I just fell in love with learning. I, I, I did exceptionally well. I did exceptionally well. You know, I, mean, I think my grade point average just in that portion was above a 3.5. After that, I, I come back in the military as an officer, and I originally uh, chose the branch of military police. I had this goal of using that first three or four years as an officer as a springboard, you know, to gain experience as a, as a military police officer. And then I wanted to uh, pursue a career somewhere in, in federal law enforcement. I didn't know which agency. However, during that time, you know, I, I came across these recruiting pamphlets they have for special forces and rangers. And, you know, I think a lot of that you, you think, well, well, that's not me. I can't do that. But I, I saw that and I kind of read through it and looked at the prerequisites looked at, you know, tried to understand the requirements. And I realized I was two years away from being able to even attend selection, which is just a job interview. It's a trial. Mm. But I but I selected that goal then. And I started to align everything in my life behind that. You know, my my daily habits, my workouts, I was doing extra, you know, running, extra lifting, well beyond what we were doing on a daily basis. And I also was doing a lot of like foot marches, you know, like carrying heavy weight, toughening my feet, creating that bone density. And I really learned the value of like delay gratification. You know, I think everybody, it's not tough to generate motivation and effort uh, when it comes to these near term goals. But this was two years out. And, and instead of trying to cram for the test, per se, I just changed my lifestyle uh, to align it to support my goals. So we'll kind of skip forward, but I go through selection, I'm selected. And then that begins essentially about two, two and a half years of schooling uh, where you get at least a master's level. Can, can I interject one thing? Sure. Tell me if I'm wrong, but you went from ranger school to SF, correct? No, I did it the other way around. So oh, I sorry. Got- so I do selection. I come back from selection. I go to the infantry officers captain's course. Okay. Then I go to the special forces qualification course. And the last phase of the qualification course is survival school or SEER school. Mm. And I finish that on 21 December. And I report to Fort Benning on 2 January for ranger school. That's brutal, man. And for people that don't know it, I mean, you know, typically if you're trying to optimize your performance, there's going to be some sort of buildup. Then you're going to then, you know, you're going to use your periodization to optimize your performance for your rival, right? Right. Well, in SEER school, you're losing 15, 18 pounds. You're not exercising at all. You're just in survival mode. And it probably wasn't the best idea, but that's, you know, in hindsight, it wasn't a good idea. But there was a bit of just being naive that, allowed me to kind of push through and uh because ranger school is brutal i mean that's no joke none of it's a joke 
No, and in, in each of each of those schools, and they have they they present their own unique challenges. Right. You know, uh, it really does. You know, I think the qualification course, the the emphasis there is on performance. Hmm. You really have to perform once you get through selection. And you have to count, you're constantly being assessed for a long, long period of time, you know, for, you know, there's, I don't know, six, seven phases of the training to include language, survival, small unit tactics, yada, yada. So you have to be able to, to kind of maintain that motivation, maintain that drive. You have to have great work habits. And, and you're in a group of people who are very, everybody's a high achiever. And... No, nobody there is average. And so along that way, one of the challenges for people who go through that training is if you if you're not one of them, if you're not up to that standard, it has a way of spitting you out. Mm. So, you, I mean, there's a saying is you're constantly being assessed and in each phase you are. And um, for me, I, I really enjoyed that challenge because to me that it was a perfect stretch assignment. You know, I was uncomfortable every day and I felt this incredible, you know, my, my own internal expectations were high and you have to meet that of the community. I get through that training and then I go to ranger school and then ultimately I get to my detachment, my special forces detachment. And uh, the detachment had just come back from Iraq. And uh, we had essentially eight or nine months to train up for our next mission. We knew we were going into Iraq. We had a mission we, we were deliberately preparing for. And we were we were like a football team for nine months. I mean, we were you know on the range Monday through Friday every week, you know, starting with the most basic skills, building up to, you know, coming in on helos, explosive breach, dual point entries at night under nods, nods, night division devices. Mm-hmm. That was like the culminating event. And during that time, there's so much, you just grow to be so close. You get to the point where you can complete each other's sentences. You know how people think, you know how they're going to move because, I mean, the principles of close quarters combat is speed, surprise, and violence of action. We don't, you know, we as the U.S. military don't have a monopoly on shooting well. Anybody can shoot well. You can teach somebody to shoot well in a very short amount of time. But the one thing that we focused in on was, was being able to generate momentum or an attack that was so fast that it doesn't allow the enemy to organize a resistance. You just overwhelm him with speed. You catch him off guard. And it, you know, like you said before, it's that, that violence of action. So it overwhelms them. Hmm. And, you know, we got, we got a chance to, to see that later on in our deployment. And now I'm going to kind of now, instead of being specific, I'm going to kind of just kind of broaden out. For a period of three years, I spent, you know, my first rotation was as a detachment commander uh, on a special forces A team, which is 12 guys. Uh, I'm the, I was the captain. I have an assistant. And then everybody on your team is a subject matter expert in some way. And then we all share these core competencies from having gone through the same training. And we all have like just everything that there's some things everybody in the team has to be good at. And then there's other things that we would cross train on. So after that rotation, I, I came back, I thought I was going to get a second rotation as an attachment commander, but I was selected to move up to become a future operations officer. You know, I worked in plans. I was doing preparing for 
a second rotation working and developing those plans. Then I became a targeting officer. But all in all, in that three years, I probably spent, I don't know, more than half of that time overseas. And during that time, you know, the, my first deployment, when I left, my wife was six months pregnant with our twins. And it was a high risk pregnancy. Uh, there, there was concern that uh, for those of you that understand what twin to twin transfusion syndrome is, there was fear that when you get that, that syndrome, if it actually happens, one baby gets too much nutrition and the other doesn't get enough. And in both cases, you, you lose both children potentially. Mm. And so they have to monitor. She's getting, you know, every week she's getting that. So you, you have this burden of being, you know, a husband, being a father, being a provider, being a son, being a brother. You have all of that. But you're also the leader of a team and you're responsible for the welfare of your men. And the burden of leadership or the cost of leadership is self-interest. You have to, I mean, it's, it's all about your men. And when you're talking about a 12-man team, you're so small that the relationships, the connections, the knowledge you have with their families, their birthdays, their children, it, it's just, it's very intimate. And, and they become, they, they become your brothers. They become your brothers. So during that time, um, after you come back, let me go back for a second. So when, when you're in, when you're in combat, I, my, my experience was not like a lot of people. I know a lot of people who were, you know, I have friends that were in just, you know, terrible, terrible situations repetitively, you know, having lost team members and a lot of that. And, you know, I was, I was fortunate to be on, on the on the good side of all of our engagements. Everything was on the positive. I didn't lose any guys. You do see loss. You, I mean, obviously you recognize that. But there is there's what's running in the background the entire time you're deployed is just this focus. This I'm constantly scanning my environment for threats. And I think the the psychological term is called hypervigilance. And so for those of you that don't know what it is, and this is my stab at it, it's hypervigilance is, imagine this, you're trying to sneak through the house at night and you don't want to wake anybody up. What happens to your jaw? You know what I mean? You feel that clenching, you know, imagine being like that pretty much every waking moment of the day. And so you have this like tension in you all the time and you're always switched on. And what happens is it becomes your default setting. It becomes your default setting. And so for me to explain what it is, imagine let's use a computer metaphor. Uh, you open a program up. It, it's, it, it's using a lot of RAM. It's using a lot of your processing speed, but then you minimize it and you move on to other stuff, but it's still running in the background. Mm. It's always running. And so for me, when you, when you come back, I didn't know, I didn't, I didn't know how to turn that off. And so what it becomes, it's, it's just a, it's not PTSD. I, I don't, I didn't have that type of experience, but what I did was I could not turn this hypervigilance off. I couldn't turn this scanning off. And then you go through your next rotation and, and, and I, I had very little exposure on my next rotation. A couple times out, you know, you're in a combat zone, but again, it doesn't, turn off. And then you come back after that. And, and what, what that does is by constantly like drawing upon your attention and drawing upon your resources, you just get worn down. 
You get worn down, you become irritable, you become difficult to deal with, you become short-tempered. And, you know, I think my wife would say during that time that I was kind of a monster, not in a mean sense, but I was just, you know, I was insensitive, you know, and, and it's because I was just, I was constantly struggling. And there's a period of time where, you know, I mean, the only way you could turn that off was self-medicating. But, you know, I went through a period of time where that, where that worked too, but then, you know, you realize that's not the answer. You know, that's not the answer. And then my kind of breaking out of that cycle was, you know, waking up one day, not feeling very well, not feeling very well because, you know, I had probably drank too much the, the night before. And um, I put my, you know, I just, I said, you know, I've been able to overcome my, where I came from. You know, I got a college degree. I've been through ranger school, survival school, special force. I've led a detachment. You know, professionally, I've done all these things in life. And, th- and it demands a lot of your character. But I'm letting something this simple get me down. And I put my running shoes on and I ran for like five hours. And I hadn't felt that good in a long time. So when I say run five hours, I literally put a camel back on my back and just started running. Did you want and- to know where you were going? I, they were actually in Kentucky at the time. Okay. They were, I can imagine so, there'd be a little freak out going on there. <laughs> and so, you know, I'm running, walking, running, walking, you know, trying to hit parks where I would find a, a water fountain. And during that time, I just, you know, I felt good. And I realized exercise is therapy. Exercise is nature's way of leveling you out. It's bringing you back to center. Mm. And so I began to explore. I wanted to understand why do you think the way you think? What, what's what's going on? So at this time, I think it was 2008-ish, you know, the the iPhone was out, uh, you know, you had apps. And and so I, I remember I ended up, bu- started buying audiobooks on, on, on topics around, you know, mindset and just everything that I, anything about the mind. I wanted to understand the mind and I wanted to somehow understand, you know, how I was before that experience and then how I am now. And so my, my initial, a lot of the stuff I read early was about just understanding the dark side of it, mm. you know, the downside, the negative side of it. And, and I began to understand that, you know, hey, listen, there's nothing wrong. You're not wrong for thinking this way, you've, you've, but you've got you've to work. And, and instead, of, instead of negatively coping, you've got to find positive coping mechanisms, things that turn your pain into something positive. And that's what I did. So I just, I started just, you know, I would, when I was, I started running all the time. I got up to like 70, 80 miles a week and I'm constantly listening to, you know, audiobooks. I would go through sometimes two, sometimes even three a week at times, depending upon my training schedule. Yeah. You, and you're the one that got me uh, listening to them on 2x speed on my way home from yeah, work. I mean, yeah. I mean, I will. I, I will. And, you know, and I read on the side too, but I, you know, I, I, that was a way of kind of doing two things at once. So I'm, I'm, and um, so I read through that piece and then finally I kind of I kind of ventured over into somewhere along the line, the performance side of psychology and like to understand. I wanted to I, I wanted to understand greatness, you know, because I was I was coming up on on a job where I was going to take over assessment and selection. And, you know, I understood selection from having gone through it, you know, as a candidate. But I didn't understand it, you know, from a from a methodology or from a structure standpoint. So I wanted to kind of understand the mindset because I've always felt like 
I felt like the physical traits are something that we could train. I knew we were going to we were going to place very high emphasis on intelligence, but I wanted to understand the mindset of a high performer or you know a high performing team. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, and I started reading more and more, and, and my hypothesis was going in that if you take high performers from all walks of life, CEOs, a musician, a chess player, a football player, a special forces soldier, basketball player, whatever. If you take away the domain-specific skills and you just look at their mindset and approach to their craft, my belief was they would be much the same. And and that's what I feel like I found. I, I think that the demands placed upon high performers, those who go on to be the best at what they do, they're very similar people. And in ways that they're, they're similar people in ways that's not always healthy. Mm. Uh, it's not, you know, I mean, I would say that uh, a lot of people, a lot of people who go on to be the best at what they do. I mean, some, some other aspects of it, something's got to give, something's got to give. Um, Have you but, learned, I mean, let's just cut to it. Yeah. You're definitely a high performer. This is something I struggle with myself is the balance of staying turned on and engaged and then disengaging and being a husband and a father and the things, the, the ring that's on my finger and the commitment that I made. What, what have you put into practice to kind of help yourself for, if you don't mind? I think it begins with, you have to constrain yourself. Mm. I've always believed that any system without constraints will evolve into inefficiency. Meaning if we're not deliberate in how we are in multiple environments, something's going to suffer. For me, I try, I, I try to consciously, deliberately move between those environments. And to me, work is work. You know, I, 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 I kind of I don't want to say compartmentalize, but I kind of because you really when you work in this type of industry, you're, you're never really off. No. Right. It, it's that window running in the background. You're always thinking about the things that you do. But then and then I have, comes at crazy times. Yeah. I'll be out like, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, yeah. And typically it's when I'm exercising, specifically, typically cardio. Like, you yeah. know, if I'm walking or running, I, I will get just just crazy ideas. And, um, you know, because you're constantly looking for ways to map new knowledge to back to this understanding to these problems you're trying to solve. But so it's always running. It's always running and, and it becomes a part of your identity. And that has that has both good parts and bad parts. You know, if you haven't read it, um, there's a book called The Passion Paradox. And he basically says there's a good kind of passion. There's a bad kind of passion, I think, in one of the chapters. And to me, look at the good kind of passion. And there's a, it can be very positive. But if you become dominated by external validation, if you become dominated by stats, numbers, and what you're achieving, you, you're creating this like craving or addiction where you're constantly chasing something. And I, I, think it can, I think it can get out of hand. Now, that doesn't mean those things aren't important. But if you want to keep those things in balance, make them, it's not, make what you do who you are. That's, you know, like I am, you know, I am an NFL employee. I work in and around football, but it's not what I do. And I and what I and so I kind of have I have I try to have that good kind of passion where it's all about this intrinsic love. It's about the process. It's about relationships. 
And so to me, I, I very quickly can shift then when I'm home, I try to be all home, completely home. And, and, and the league is really good about when you're off, you're off. Right. Love uh, that. Now, and now they will put huge demands upon your time. I mean, I, I've, I've said before, you know, the NFL will take a pound of your flesh. I mean, it, it, it requires a commitment on, you know, it's not different than the military. But the good thing is when you're off, you're off. And so when I when I go home, I, I try to be completely there for my family. And, and um, I'm not going to say that I'm great at that. I'm not even going to say I'm good at that, but I'm trying to be conscious of that. I was listening to a podcast recently with Shane Parrish, and he was talking to the guy that's a venture capitalist, talking about his children being a good parent. And he said, with children, one is your attention. And they will fight for your attention. And so when you're with them, one of the most valuable things you can do is give them your attention and engage with whatever that is, because that means the world to them. If it's a project, if it's something that they're doing. And so that really impacted me. I was listening to the podcast. I was mowing the lawn and I'm like running for my phone so I can write this down. But I'm like, bingo, you know, because I've had to be doing a lot of work from home lately and it's gotten a little messy because it's hard to help your kids understand. I'm like, listen, when I leave this room, my attention is on you and it's something that I'm working through. But it's, that's a that's a really good point. Yeah, for me, uh, I mean, I wish I, that's an area which I, I'm trying to do a better job to be more attentive, to be more engaging. I'm, I'm a very introverted person, mm. so I have a strong internal dialogue. I, I don't I'm not natural. Being engaging is not natural for me. It's not my default setting. My, desu- my default setting is to be somewhere dreaming and, and to and have this internal chatter and to be working through things. I'm, I'm a thinker. You know, I'm a, that's that's what I do. So, but one of the, one of the things that's been really important to me uh, as a parent, as a leader, you know, as, you know, as somebody who works with high performing people is, is I think you first and foremost, you have to model great behavior, be a great example, be a great example for others, because if there's any inconsistency between who you say you are and how, how they are perceived, how people perceive you, then that, that I think your message loses it loses its steam you know for the one thing that i've seen over time with my i have twin girls who are 16 and i i tried there was a period of time where i tried to be very conscious in their development and i realized i was being too overbearing and i've kind of backed off and allowed them to be take the lead somewhat in their life and what i found is i see them now internalizing a lot of my values Mm. you know like yesterday i'm coming home from indianapolis and you know, they text me and say, hey, can we go to the gym tonight? You know, that's, you know, you know, you know, that, right. you know, yeah. <laughs> and, and then they're like, you know, hey, can you, you know, hey, dad, after we work out, can we go to Smoothie King? And, uh, and I'm like, sure. And they're like, well, the one nearest by is closed. The nearest one's 30 miles away. And I'm like, well, you guys are training for your driver's test anyway. Let's do it. Yeah. And so good time to because, get. and so, yeah. And so I, and what, what I'm hoping that they do is they, they have, they take some of that love of learning. They take some of that lure, love of just getting better and they, and they make it a part of their life without making it unhealthy. That's all. Awesome. That's the big part is I don't want them to, I don't want them to make it unhealthy. I don't want it to become something where you're, you become so obsessed. I mean, you have to live. And, and that, I think that's really the key to all of this is moderation. Hmm. And I think that's where, that's where I think your, 
your work-life balance can get uh, if, if one becomes so in, if you become so engrossed in it that you do it at, in lieu of other things. Yes. I want to go back to when you were commanding special forces assessment and selection for a minute. I'm just going to ask a huge question. How do you identify talent? I think if you make your environment, your assessment process fair, but extremely difficult in a way that's predictive of what you're trying to do, you know, you, you don't want to put events into your selection process that are causing attrition that have no connection to future performance or development. But for me, we had the process what came out the other end, you know, you, you put 350 or 400 up and the, the 80 to 120 that pop out the other side, you know, the process that you put them through vets the candidate. It really does. And so for us, it's, there's some things our system just, I mean, we, we absolutely value. The one thing we jokingly say, you can't fix a lack of intelligence. You really can't. So you have to select for it. So we had, we really ramped up the demands we placed on them in, from an intelligence standpoint. And the reason why we didn't do that just arbitrarily because we like smart guys, the special forces, probably more than any other of your special operations branches, it has one of the broadest ranges of, of mission sets. I mean, you can, I mean, you largely are going to go somewhere to do something that you probably can't anticipate in the future. So you have to take a broad-based education. You have to be a very dynamic team player, a problem solver, very intelligent. And really, the one thing that I think you have, we valued more while I was there than anything was the ability to adapt. Mm-hmm. The ability to adapt because the, the rate and pace of change and everything we do, it's, it's just, it's, it's gotten great. And, and, and I need you to get comfortable with uncertainty. I need you to get uncomfortable in an environment where you don't have answers, where there may not be an answer. But you just you slowly begin to type, try to iterate toward a solution. So, so for me, the talent was they were they were extremely smart. They had you made you need to make the physical requirements such that it's they had to have began to start training a long time before that. They had to have a lifestyle leading up to that. You know, they really have to have been deliberate in their preparation. But then after that, you want to, once we made sure that they were smart and intelligent, it was all about, are they a good fit for who we are? And so one of the first things that I did, and I, I don't even know if they're still doing it, but it was one of the most beautiful exercises in identifying talent that I've ever seen. And I think you could do it with any group was we typically in our team week, we would assign leadership. Hey, Eric, you are the patrol leader. You've got to move this 55-gallon drum from here to six miles away. Here are the, the supplies that you have. What are your questions? Okay, you need to begin movement in 15 minutes or whatever that was. And so there's lots of stress, but there's this centrality of leadership that's not present in special forces. You don't lead like that. You don't. The captain doesn't jump up on top of the table and, and like orchestrate this great plan. No, you lead from within. You are another member of the team. And so one of the first things I did was I just, I got rid of leadership. I said, we're going to go to a leaderless environment. 
And people did not like that word because, you know, it, it's really a misnomer. I mean, it, it's more of an emergent leader environment. So you get 16 guys in a circle and you drop a very novel problem in the middle. And why I say novel is you don't want to measure experience. You want to measure ability. You want to measure traits. And if anybody has experience with those problems, then they will naturally, they will see solutions that others don't. So we use very, very novel solutions or very, very novel problems. But what happens immediately within minutes, once you drop that and you step in the, in the assessor steps outside that circle, you see magic. They start to self-organize around this problem. People begin, to, they start communicating. They start, they start bouncing ideas off of, and they, and they, and they start, you know, they may feel a need to break into smaller groups and develop competing ideas. But within, within five minutes, I can tell you who the four leaders are on that team. I can tell you who the four leaders on that team are. And I probably can also tell you the four people that are not going to be comfortable in a highly dynamic uncertain environment because they just slowly gravitate to the outside of the circle and they stand and they wait to be told what to do. Is part of this a lack of trust? Trust is a part of that. You know, it, when you're talking about a couple of days on one team, switching up in a couple of days on another, that trust, trust is, is, or is being built as you move through the course there. Trust is absolutely a prerequisite to a great team. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, but that's on fire. But there's still an element of trust in this, and and I would say, you know, you have to, you have to be able to lead. You have to be able to present ideas. You need to be able to make corrections in a way that's very very emotionally intelligent. You know, because I mean, one of the things that we're all guilty of doing is equating confidence with competence. You know, the loudest guy in the room, he he obviously knows what he's doing, and the team might accept that loud person during the first mission. But the way we work those missions throughout the day is we're constantly introducing changes. We're putting something in, we're taking something away. And every time, every time they, you do that, they're forced to reconsider the problem. And so what happens is that person who was loud and, and he wanted to be the traditional, just vocal leader, like I'm going to stand up, listen to me, here's what we're going to do. After about three iterations, the team will, you know, somebody will stand up and say, listen, we've been listening to you all day. It ain't working. Right. <laughs> so uh, so and what happens is so in, in as you're doing this, what we the beauty of the system is, is you spend two together, two days together on one team. So that's 16 men, two days together. And then you have one day, one assessor will walk with you and the next day, a different assessor will walk with you. And you after at the end of that, every day, every candidate assesses himself on those attributes. And he assesses everybody on that team on those attributes. And then he also identifies, he rank orders his team, top to bottom, one to 16. And he identifies one person with a blue card that he most would want to serve with and why. And one person on that team he would least want to serve with and why. And also, your assessors are riding everybody on the team. And if you think about how all that data maps together, you get this multi-source 360 degree assessment after two days. It, it, it just pops out at you. This is my guy. These are my guys. Like I can tell you like this, this top 25%, I think they'll go on to be future leaders of the regiment. They're going to be great. This bottom, this bottom group here, 
if there's not some sort of extenuating circumstance, you know, and, and one of the reasons, one of the things that you could do down there is you find a kid who's exceptionally smart, exceptionally physically fit, but he's just very, very young and experienced. You might, you might make a concession. You might, you, you might, you know, you've got to be willing, don't be dogmatic in your approach. He's what we would call a developmental player. Yeah, he really is. He's a developmental guy. You know, you're looking at guy who has traits. So to me, it just pops out. And, 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 and one of the things, a lot of people don't like those type of environments because they are extremely competitive, extremely competitive. You know, I took in, I can't say the school names, but I've ran a group of people from uh, the young presidents of America, like up and coming, you know, young CEOs, 40 years, I want to say 40 years old or younger. YPO. I took YPO. Yeah. Young presidents organization. Um, so I took I took a group of them through it, and it was really interesting to see them go through it. But you know, I think all of them saw the richness of the exercise. They all saw it. But one of the best exercises in looking at two populations, I took one population who were all undergraduates. They had been selected for a, a great academic institution, and they were going into a program whose selection criteria included not just SAT and, and ACT scores and GPA, but it also looked at, you know, varsity athletics. It looked at leadership. It looked at community service. It looked very, very, you know, hey, listen, have you served, you know, done some sort of service abroad? Very, very broad based. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the undergraduate group. The other group came from an even more prestigious school and they were all MBA students. And all they were, all their selection criteria was based on was undergraduate GPA and GRE scores or GMAT or GRE. I can't remember which one. And they were all extremely, extremely smart, extremely smart. So which group do you think did better when competing head to head? The younger group. Oh, they, they ran circles around. Yeah. They ran circles around because the group of MBA students who were all purely academic you know, they're, they had, most of them were like 28, 29. They'd had three. I, I think the school required three or four years of post bachelor's degree experience before you could come back. But they, they were just they were paralyzed by analysis. They they all wanted they could not leave without the power of structure, the authority that comes with position. Mm. And this young group, it was males. It was females. It was, you know, people of of different ethnicity. It was just, I mean, and they were just so dynamic and there was this, they weren't afraid. They weren't afraid to be judged. I mean, I guess that's part of that trust thing you were talking about, but they just, I mean, they just, they would, they would, every time you would, you would start them at the same point and they would be gone for 30 minutes before the one group even got a solution, much less a decent solution, you know? And so, and what I saw, what I saw in that process was agility. And if I was going to make a process of selecting or developing future leaders, I would do something very similar because I think the role of leadership today is maybe different than it was in the industrial age or different than it was back when, you know, times were more stable. Mm-hmm. The problem now with, with, with leadership is like, you know, a leader has to be able to lead and he may not have the answers. And, and leaders aren't comfortable with that. They're not comfortable, you know. And so to me, like when you see that, when you get comfortable in that environment, like you become very comfortable, like, hey, what, what are you good at? What, what do you know? Like and you look at everybody around you 
as a contributing member of that team. And that team becomes very dynamic. They, they're very adaptable. They're very agile. You know, they can pivot just like that. And, and the reason why is, is they don't get, they, they, they aren't these linear thinkers. They're very divergent in the way they think. And I think you can almost train that out of people, though. If you take somebody who really would thrive in that environment and get and he gets into a highly centralized, highly structured, you know, you're driven by all of these, uh, all of these metrics, these outcome based metrics, outcome you can, you can debilitate you. Yeah. It is. It'll basically just clips your wings, you know? And so to me, I, I wanted, this is, I guess this is the one thing I would say, this is me personally, and this is me professionally. I don't want someone to work for me who wants to be told what to do. Yep. I don't have time for that. I don't have time for that. You know, I, I, I want the person who doesn't want to be told what to do. And if he does, they, they're more interested in just partnering with you than they are. They, they just don't, they don't, they don't like to be told what to do. And, and that's the kind of guys in, in, that I selected whenever I was there. So I, I was there for 34, 35 months. I want to say 26, 27 classes. I would love to, I'd love to see where these, where these guys go, you know, 10, 15 years down the line and where such a gratifying, I, I can see the smile on your face right yeah. now. When, when you, well, when you put together a good team and you can kind of sit back for a second and watch that team work, there is such, there's such intense satisfaction that comes from watching other people do amazing things. You know, Eric, whenever we did that and after we had ironed out the wrinkles and we had developed new um, scenarios for, for that training, everybody came out and, and they were just blown away on how it would work. We would stop in the middle. We would stop in the middle and we might give them a puzzle or a really we're trying to give them a bunch of different types. Some are hard and heavy. Some are some are very intellectually demanding because what you want to do is you want to assess them in a lot of different type of task problem environments. And give people who have different styles or different strengths an ability to demonstrate what they could do. And everybody could, you know, they, they were just, you know, 15 minutes watching a group work on a project. You could see it. You could see it. I mean, it was just like you're like, it's clear. I mean, it's like it, you could you could the volume could be off. You could be 50 foot above just watching and you could tell. You could tell who they were. And so to me, the best leaders are those who gain their legitimacy. From the team, mm. there's teams who select their own leadership, and so I think your process should, is in some way, have a component where the people you're leading have some part to play in you being selected as a leader. Now I don't know if that's just input as a part of a, you know, a, an annual 360 degree assessment. I don't know what that looks like, but I will say this: whenever the team selects you as the leader. There's less, how do I say it? There's just no questioning who they are and what they're about and what they do. They, it's, it's, it's absolutely 100% merit-based. They don't know if you went to the United States Military Academy. They don't know if you went to Duke or, they don't know, or if you went to Albany State. They don't know. They just know in this environment, this dude, I feel very comfortable following this guy's lead. I love it. I want to hit on two more topics. I want to talk about toughness and I want to ask the first question is how much is inherited and how much is developed 
can you be tough to everything or is toughness task specific? Can I just answer yes? <laughs> okay. <laughs> just give me so, whatever you think. So I, I want to go back for a second. So I, I, there is absolutely a nature and nurture component to this. Mm -hmm. I, I do believe there are people who are born with a predisposition to be tougher. But I think those, I, I, I think it's called fixed point theory. Imagine a trait is expressed from zero to 100 and you were born with, a, with a, an 80 in that trait. And then based on your environment, you may go down to as low as a 70 or you may be as high as a 90. But I believe you're going to operate within like a genetic range based on how your traits marry up to your specific environment. So I do think that I do think there are certain people who are predisposed to being tougher. I do think there are people who are predisposed to struggle a bit in that arena. I mean, I think people who are naturally very anxious, that's a struggle for them in those environments because whether you think you can or you can't, you're probably right. Mm -hmm. And it, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So to me, I, I do believe there's a nature component, but to me, the type of toughness that we're talking about the type that's demanded to be elite in your field, it's, it, it's beyond that which you were born with. And it's forged through doing very difficult things. Do those you difficult know? things have to be related to what you want to be tough at? So, for instance, if I'm a tough ranger and I can operate with you, okay, but then I take you and throw you into a kitchen with a three-star Michelin chef and say, go cook for the president of the United States. What's my toughness going to look like in that situation? Am I going to have a stress response? Absolutely. I mean, you're, I mean to me, it is, it is very task specific. Okay. So to me, I think what you have to, I mean, I always use the airplane metaphor. You could take the absolute most physically, mentally tough athlete that you've worked with ever and put him up in the door of an airplane and, you know, as you prepare to jump. If he's not if he's not been through the preparation, if he's not built up confidence in, in, that, in his ability in that situation, I promise you he's going to be in a he's going to be in a very difficult mental state. <laughs> I you literally know? just did a post on this yesterday on yeah, that exact concept because I had a, a friend of yours in your community ask me how I develop mental toughness with my athlete. I said it has to be task specific. You have to inoculate people to stress have to help them acknowledge that there's a stress there, give them coping and tools, mechanisms, and then scale it. You know what I'm saying? But let me ask you another question. Go ahead. I, I want right. to talk some more on this before we move off. Yeah. Um, we can talk about positive self-talk. We can talk about a lot of these things. The one thing that you're going to have to be to be tough is you have to be equal to or better than your problem. Otherwise, the feedback loops that you start getting once you begin to compete, your skill is going to tell you whether or not you're good enough. So I like to use the example of, um, have you seen the documentary Free Solo? Amazing. Amazing. So he selects the goal of climbing El Capitan without ropes nine years before he actually accomplishes it. And during those nine years, he is, you know, he's, Constantly developing his technique, his mental focus, his, his fitness level. He's taking on progressively more difficult tasks. Out of season, he's climbing in Morocco. 
And, you know, he talks about having, you know, climbed with ropes that same route 50 times and setting and working through specific parts of that problem. He had identified the boulder problem as the crux of that climb that, you know, and, and he talks about how he worked through that. And then on top of those 50 climbs, he, he talks about the power of visualization, how he visualized how he was going to handle that. And so a man gets on a rock wall. He climbs 3,000 feet without any safety equipment. It takes three hours and 56 minutes. And any mistake outside of probably the first three or four minutes, it's probably certain death. And for me, what's so, what, what was so great about that is that in that moment, I don't think he was experiencing the type of fear that most climbers would have. Because his ability to climb and to manage the technical and physical and mental and emotional aspects of that were so great that that problem was well inside his skill set. It was well inside of his skill set. So to me, if you want to build toughness, understand your operational environment. And then you have to build the skill so that you're better than the problem you're up against. And, and if you're going to build your skill to be better than the problem you're in, you're going to have to get comfortable doing really difficult things. Because it's only when you do something difficult and you force your body to adapt to that, that you make gains in said domain. So you have to, and, and the problem with that is, is when we, when we first start an activity, we put one unit of effort in and we get one unit of skill. And then later it's one unit of effort equals half a unit of skill. And then it's one, and it gets down to the point where there's so small, the return on investment, these marginal, marginal gains that we get from, it takes a huge amount of effort to gain just a small amount. But at the level, if you're competing, the level you're competing, if you're at the elite level, that tenth of a percent may be all it takes to create an outsized result. And that may be all it takes to be better than your problem. And so to me, you need to be better than your problem. And then you can bring on bring online tools that will help people manage the emotions, to manage their focus, and to frame things in a way that facilitates learning in their mindset. But it starts with being better than your problem. Amazing. I mean, this is great. This is gold right here. So in college sports, there's this idea that, you know what, we're going to become a tough football team. Or we're going to become a tough X team. And so we're going to bring in former Navy SEALs to have us do log PT all day long and get in a boat. And then we're going to do this one-off experience. And then all of a sudden, our team's going to be tough in the crucible moment in the fourth quarter with the technical expertise to execute under extreme stress and duress. That would correct me if I'm wrong, then that would be an example of gaining global optimism that I can do something difficult, but it's transfer to specific mental toughness is very low. Would you agree or disagree? Absolutely. It, it, it's a great team building exercise where you can gain an appreciation for your teammates and I, I do think there is a there is a marginal gain in toughness from having doing tough things all the time. Yeah. Some people, I think the people who are the most mentally tough, uh, they're constantly doing difficult things. But the transfer of that to what they're doing, it's I mean, it's marginal at best. It's de minimis. I mean, it's just so very, had, very tiny. If you had twenty thousand dollars to spend on these one off experiences or twenty thousand dollars to spend on creating 
environments that stress these athletes and make them do really, really hard stuff. You know, I just see this trade-off all the time where you put your resource because it's a resources and then it's a time game. Yeah, I'm not going to do uh, log PT. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to I'm going to find something else to do. I'd, I'd, buy, I'd buy them all books. I you know teach them reading. I'd, I'd educate them on something. From the to me, I mean, when you, when you, selection and development for special forces. All right, I just had to throw that one in there. Yeah. So t- to me, I mean, if you want to, uh, as we think about resilience, team resilience, I think it starts with you got to get the right guys in the boat. It's going to be hard for um, a development program or a performance program to overcome a poor acquisition process. So you got to get the right type of talent on board. And then second of all, I think you have to have a process of developing your athletes that develop, you know, that there's a mindset to development and performance that's more resilient than others. For us, that's about being process oriented. You know, we're focused on the process over the outcomes. And, and one of the mental models that drives that is a model of pressure developed by Weisinger in, in the book, Performing Under Pressure. He talks about pressure being coming from three places. One, the, the situation you're in is important. Because if it's not, there's no pressure. Secondly, it's uncertain, which means it's still not decided because if the game's out of hand, it doesn't really matter. And then lastly, you feel like you're going to be judged on the outcome. When any one of those three things are present, you're going to increase the pressure of the situation. So if you focus, if you shift off of outcomes and you shift to the process, you take the long view of success, you play the infinite game. I think you you begin to develop a, a very resilient team and process. But then the last piece and the third leg of that stool is the environment. Skills trained and developed under duress or under extreme situation, you know, like under stress mm-hmm. are more hardy. That's my belief. I don't know what theory that, that that addresses, but I do believe that. So here's the one thing I do think it's working there is. Well, that would be uh, neuroplasticity. Yeah, but I, I do believe this, that, you know, we are one person in steady state yeah. when we're not under stress. Most of us are not the same person under pressure. So we need to learn to operate and do these things in, 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 with a, a fair degree of stress. Not only that, does it, does, it, does it stress inoculate you or vaccinate you against that stress in many ways? It's also developing your ability. Remember, we have to get uncomfortable to get better. And so examples in a sports setting for me is, I mean, I mean, you can, you speed up the decision-making speed under you, you speed something up. You will see where your problem's at. I don't think you can see in a football walkthrough where the problems are with execution, but if you go no huddle, you speed it up and you, you start placing demands upon the stamina endurance of the athlete while also make force him to make rapid decisions. Next thing you know is, the flaws in your ability to execute will be very easy for you to see, much like that team week we talked about. Mm-hmm. And to me, you can you can create those situations where where you stress the athlete. And to me, I mean, your best wide receiver should be going up against your best defensive back every day because that makes each of them better. You know, it's not about just dominating the guy. It's about finding somebody who is good enough that you'll, they'll make you better. That's one of the concerns that I think you have to have when you, when you take players from lower levels of competition is 
how developed are they? How, how much have they been challenged in their development? Were they just so much better of an athlete that it was, you know, they outclassed them? Mm. And this can be applied to anything. I mean, business, it could be applied. I mean, any area of your life, you know, if you want to develop resiliency or toughness with a specific skill set, it's developed under duress. And if you look at neuroplasticity and the ability to learn a new skill, you have to have like very acute levels of stress to be able to do that, to create these stronger connections or weaken others, and then back it up with rest. Before we, the problem with that is though, in a, in a team setting though, Eric, you know, like in that setting where you're stressing the team, you know, five people may be struggling. They're treading water. You know, three people find this boring. You know, and, and the other rest, the rest of the group has a, a very moderate level of stress. So to me, that's where the development at a very, very individual level, you have to find a way whenever everybody's doing the same activity where everybody out there doesn't necessarily have the same goals for development. And so their emphasis and what they're working on, the feedback they're getting and the unique situations that the coach is developing for them has to be such that it's challenging in a way in which they get better. That's hard to do. That takes a lot of organizational syncrasy, communication, and it puts strain on people to continue to think, wouldn't you say? I mean, it does. I mean, you have to be more deliberate, but it's not that difficult. Let's just say an athlete, he needs to work on, uh, a wide receiver needs to work on getting in and out of his breaks. Well, every day we're doing individual drill and we're doing, you know, wide receiver DB. I'm going to give him that goal. I'm not, but his position coach may give him the goal. Of, hey, listen, I really want you to focus in on this. Let's talk about the technique. Let's work through it. And during that day, the coach may just go back at the end of that day and look at that film and give him feedback specific to that event. Mm. Whereas the other guy may be working on creating separation at the line of scrimmage. So it's really about, you know, understanding the sequence of learning or understanding the sequence of skill, understanding that player's ability. Uh, we all can do the same things, but we all may have a different developmental focus. And my feedback needs to be specific to them. We can't have this global feedback where that was right or wrong, or you give them 15 things to do because then you just overwhelm the system. You give me 15 things to do. I, I'm, I'm going to struggle to understand how to prioritize. And if I do them, I'm likely to do all of them poorly. Versus if I do one, consolidate that game. What is the next step in my evolution? Move to that. And I love this stuff. Something that's relevant to our time is COVID. Okay. It's changed a lot of things. Something I admired about you early on. I mean, shoot, we met when you were still at Bragg. And then you went to this evolution of struggling, you know, NFL, out of the NFL, back in the NFL. The workplace, the market is becoming incredibly competitive. And I think, in my opinion, because of COVID, it's going to get even more competitive. What can people be doing? Since you're an evaluator of talent, what can I be doing? How do I separate myself in a very competitive market, agnostic to the field? You're talking about an industry with extremely high barriers to entry. Extremely high barriers to entry. For every position that comes available, there are thousands and thousands of people who are overly qualified for them. And so to me, you have to, you have to create a value proposition. You have to make it easy for the team. And to me, the one, one of the things that comes to mind to me is that we have people who are very well educated. 
We have other people with, with great experience. But I think you have to have both of those because if, if you're able to integrate your knowledge with your experience, it creates wisdom. Mm-hmm. It creates wisdom. And then you're able to t- you're able to sell your skill in the form of story. You can give specific examples of how how you've done that. To me, it's 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 really about we, you're they don't have time to develop you. They don't have time to develop you. You need to be able to bring a skill. You need to have a value proposition that you can sell up front. And, and, and I will say this. I mean, you just got to remain extremely, extremely, extremely persistent. And, and one of the things that we're guilty of doing is we, we, we set a goal. We develop a pathway to it. The next thing after you develop your goal and you develop your, your path to that, think about all the obstacles along the way. Think about all the different obstacles or barriers to entry. Where are those obstacles? And think how you're about how you're going to handle them. And to me, if you, you're just going to have to be persistent, you're going to have to be extremely persistent. And it's ultimately people who who go on to be successful. It tends to be not only ability or expertise or knowledge and experience. It's it, it's a relationship. Somebody, you know, that's the way, that's the currency of the league, as as I've seen it. Now, some people may disagree with you, but I think you have to have all of those. And then you have to have, you have to have relationships and you you need a sponsor. We, We all need a mentor in this type of process. You know, that was for me whenever, whenever I, whenever I was out of the league from Cleveland, I was in this process of trying to understand, should I get another chance? How do I, what, what do I learn from what I've done? How do I, and, and I put my, I tried to make myself uncomfortable by really developing some products and some beliefs and some models out of that. But for me, I, I had a mentor, you know, I had, I had Joe Banner and, and Joe was really huge in helping me along the way. I mean, he's, I mean, in the end of the day, I mean, if, it, if it's not for Joe Banner, I'm not in the NFL. Mm. I'm not in the NFL. I mean, I owe him my, my entire professional career. And he believed in me. He believed in what I could do. And he was willing to extend his own reputation to put my name into circles. And then luckily, I just, I, I, you, you finally find a fit. That's the key is it's not about getting to the league or, or to getting whatever job it is that you're looking for. It's about being successful in it. Mm-hmm. And to do that, you're, you're going to need to be a good fit for that organization, for the leadership structure. And, you know, I say these are the prerequisites for great work is that you want to work for and with good people. And don't assume that that's everywhere. You want to work for and with good people. Secondly, you want to work for somebody who has a vision, a very compelling vision. Something that you're, you know, it's a cause that you're worth getting behind. It's worth getting behind. And they need to have a, not only do they have to have a vision, they have to have a plan to get there. You need to be able to see how they're going to do it. And then lastly, you need to have a role that would allow you to create value. Because just being a part of the team is not going to be enough. You want to make a difference. And to do so, you need to bring value to the team. You need to be able to create value for the team. Unbelievable. I wish I could get five episodes with you. This is such good stuff. Rapid, quick fire. What books are you reading right now? I just finished The Infinite Game by Simon Sinek. It's awesome. 
What book? All these books are. The next book on my list, and I don't know the name of it, but he wrote the book "Turn the Ship Around." By it's by a Navy captain. Yeah. I'm going to read. I think it's called "The Language of Leadership." I'm going to read his second book. His first book on leadership was phenomenal. What skill are you developing right now? Hmm. I think mine is really it's coaching. I don't know if that's a skill. Absolutely. But um, <laughs> everything that I've done up to this point has been very organic. And as, as my role has expanded with the Colts, it's not about what I know. It's what I can help others understand. So I'm trying to be a better asset for our coaches, for our scouts, and for our players. Uh, it's, I think I have the best job in NFL in the sense that all I'm trying to do is make everyone around me better. It, and it has nothing to do with what I do. Nothing to do with what I do. You know, in, in the sense that there's nothing, if there's no individual accolade to be won. You know, if, if the team does well, we all do well. Yeah. Well, Brian, I am so thankful that we got you on today. And um, I'm looking forward to wrangling you back in the future. But for me, this was enriching. And I know for everybody else that's listening right now that they're probably going to want to listen to this three or four times because there's so much wisdom in, the, in these words. But thank you so much for being here. You're amazing. You're a great friend. And I love and care about you deeply. Same here. I really appreciate you, Eric. Thanks, thanks for the opportunity. Love and care for you. Wish you nothing but success in this process. Thanks, buddy. All right, bye. Bye.